Well, it's another edition of the Roaring Twenties podcast. This is Voice of the Royals, David Fine. Coming up in just a minute, we're going to be stepping up the ladder for a person that's been around the ECHL and the AHL for more than a decade, and that is Voice of the Lehigh Valley Phantoms, Bob Rotruck, a great friend of the Royals of Santander Arena and of Royals broadcasts. Bob started his ECHL career on the opposite side of the rivalry with the Wheeling Nailers, spent two years there, talks a little bit in this podcast about how he got to the ECHL, and then we delve into the Flyers system. Bob has been with the Phantoms organization since he went up to Glens Falls, and it was the Adirondack Phantoms before the Lehigh Valley Phantoms, and Bob got his start there with the Brooks Brothers and has continued as the Phantoms broadcaster in the Lehigh Valley for the last six seasons. So. Excited to get started with this one. Bob has some great stories. We relive some memories of him calling the five overtime game as well that the Phantoms won a few years ago against the Charlotte Checkers. And without further ado, Bob Rotruck, the voice of the Lehigh Valley Phantoms. Thank you, David. I, it's nice to be here. Um, yeah, it's been weird. <laughs> I mean, you know, it has been for everyone, right? Uh, we, uh, my wife and I and our kiddo, we, we moved to a new house. So not having as much to do actually worked out kind of well in, in its own way for us because that's, that's a, that's a time-consuming project. Uh, and for me, I've been taking care of the kiddo a lot, our, our seven-year-old girl, Aurora, because I've, I haven't been going into the office with the Phantoms. My wife has been picking up some extra shifts. She's a nurse at a hospital, so now she's you know, wearing masks and big face shields and, and all of that stuff at LVHN. Uh, uh, but for me, it's, it's been a lot of time with Aurora. We actually, uh, on, a, on a not very happy note, my, our, the whole family, we all got COVID back in April. So that kind, of, that kind of was kicking our butt a little bit. I mean, it was mild. We didn't have to be hospitalized or anything, but that takes a while to get over. And it, it's scary too, especially in April. We didn't know what's going with what and my father-in-law is living with us and he had it as well and he's 74 you know we came through it fine but that was that was certainly a, a stressful time and, and we're taking care of aurora who's seven you know while we're sick and she was a little sick but didn't you know i don't think she really she didn't notice a difference so that was that was not fun then we completed the move and now we're settling into our new house and and hoping that we have a hockey season coming up, I guess. So, so you know, the, the whole how how is your summer? That's supposed to be an upbeat thing. I guess I'm making that a bit of a downer, right? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, I don't know how many people knew uh, that you had had yeah, it. I didn't. I didn't spread it. I mean, I said it a little bit, but not much. But you know, thankfully, it wasn't a big deal for us. You that's know, it. Just that, took what a few you, weeks to. We're, we're staying home. We're quarantining. We're trying to order groceries online. So because we can't go to the store, even with a mask. And then, uh, and then the grocery delivery would take a week because everything was backed up then. So we had neighbors bringing us stuff and dropping it off at our door. And not, friends of ours, you know, who came through like champs. I mean, it was just, it was goofy. <laughs> and, and, but, but we're, I mean, seriously, we were, we were pretty mild. We were just off and on sick. It's, it's a weird illness. It really is. So anyway, I mean, we know we had it because my wife would, you know, since she's a nurse, she tested and she was positive. And we're like, oh, geez, this is not good. But thankfully, it's okay. And maybe there's some sort of lasting immunity, we hope. But now they think you can catch it twice. So we have to be just as, you know, just as cautious about things as we were before. Because you can still get it again. And we know we don't want it again, for crying out loud. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's I'm it's I'm glad it's not a or wasn't a harrowing experience because it's been terrible yeah. for so many people. Uh, what you what the heck do you do with yourself for two weeks sitting in the house? I know it was a it was mild. I'm sure you guys were a little bit concerned, but how many movies? What what did you what did you do for those two or three weeks? I mean, it was it was actually almost closer to a month because wow. the illness comes back and then you have a the longer time and 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 we were in our apartment then. And we're, a lot of it was spent trying to keep Aurora entertained. We have a seven-year-old and we can't go and see anyone. So board games, video games, she was still doing online school then. And we're trying to push through that. And that was, you know, it's, it's weird to have your classes canceled. And then you're, you're doing first grade from home and, and doing the math assignments and everything. And, you know, just trying to make it through the day. I think, I think as much as with anyone else, you're just making it through the day if you're not working and there's there's a little bit of boredom involved but you know yes a lot of movies a lot of a lot of kids movies a lot of barbie tv shows i've i've watched more hello kitty and princess stuff than any adult male ever wants to have to contend with <laughs> and i and i still do <laughs> baby shark you know? so that 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 was our spring and summer primarily yes so as soon as hockey comes back, some of these things will start slipping in the goal calls. We know that's just the natural what happens in oh, life, yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about yourself. Then we'll get into some hockey. So you were, and I meant to say, the Phantoms recently crossed five seasons. Now six seasons at the end of the 2019. 2020 season in the Lehigh Valley with 1819 being the fifth anniversary season and then 1920 being the sixth. But uh, you were with the Adirondack Phantoms before that. And uh, even just before that, you were with the Wheeling Nailers uh, and you're in Ohio. Should I I show it here? Here's my Wheeling Nailers mug for for an interview on on an ECHL uh, run broadcast. I'm bringing out my ECHL background. (laughs) I was with Wheeling for two years, 2008 to 2010. How the heck did you get involved with the Wheeling Nailers and involved in pro hockey? That was, that was weird. I mean, I, we, we had just moved to Pittsburgh at the time, and I'd been out of announcing for six years or so. I don't know if I told you any of this. Maybe I have. And, uh, and Brendan Burke left Wheeling uh, and, and got the gig in Peoria. Now he's the voice of the New York Islanders, and he's on NBCSN, but he was like 23 years old then or whatever he was. And uh, they, they were a little late hiring a replacement. He was late going to Peoria. And I, you know, I had just, we had just been living in Norfolk. We were moving around because my wife was doing this kind of traveling nurse thing where they put you up at a house for a little while um, at hospitals that have a desperate need for nurses. So they pay more and we didn't have a kid then and we could travel around and see the world a little bit. Uh, but your, your options of where to go are limited. So we, we didn't have intentions on going to Norfolk, but we had to leave our previous location. So we ended in Norfolk. I visit my friend there, uh, Pete Mishu, who was broadcasting the Norfolk Admirals, and I had just been talking with him. I went to a preseason game against the Philadelphia Phantoms. And, uh, and I said, I, I really would love to get back into announcing sometime, you know, I, because I'm kind of picking up these part-time gigs everywhere we go. And I'd love to give it a try, but I haven't done it for so long. And so from that, a couple days later, after we were moving to Pittsburgh, on our way out of Norfolk, he sends me an email. Hey, I don't know if you're interested, but Wheeling has an opening. I, I wasn't even looking for jobs. And so 
I went, well, that's not far from Pittsburgh, is it? I mean, we just moved. I didn't know. <laughs> and, and, and I called uh, the ownership, and I called Rob and Jim Brooks, who owned the team then. Now they're still my employers with the Phantoms. And, and I stayed on them, and they invited me to come and do a preseason game the night before. They invited me to come to a preseason game on a recording and make a demo for them. I just I didn't have any tapes. And, and I didn't know any of these players. And the next thing I know, I show up and they put me on the radio. Well, we've got an announcer, so we might as well put them on the air. I didn't know I was going on the air until I showed up there at 4.30 or whatever for a preseason game with a bunch of players I'd never heard of. Curtis Darling was the goalie, I remember. And, um, and, and I did the game and they liked me, but then through a friend and a recommendation, they ended up hiring a different announcer. But within a couple of weeks, the fans were not happy with this guy. He wasn't working out, uh, and, and it, it wasn't a good match. So now that I'm still around, and almost right on my birthday, the day before Halloween on October 30th, I get a call. Hey, we, we are moving on from our previous announcer. It's two weeks into the season. It's sort of similar to the preseason game. Would you like to come in and, and do our game tomorrow on Halloween again for the Wheeling Nailers against the Dayton Bombers? And, and – I said, yeah, I still don't really know your players, but at least they did a preseason game. And that was a one or two week tryout because they kind of got burned on this previous situation. And, and I said, well, you know, on, on the other side of these two home games, I'm getting on a bus and riding 20 hours to Biloxi, Mississippi. <laughs> so I'm hoping that we're, you know, if I come back and you hire a different announcer after I go through all that, I'm not going to be thrilled. And, and they, they said, well, we're, we're hoping that this works out long term. So I was on a two-week tryout for the entire season. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And now 12 years later, two years with Wheeling and 10 years with the Phantoms after they, they purchased that team, I'm, I'm still with them. I, I had a great time with Wheeling, and the, the fans, you know, welcomed me so much. I mean, I, was, I, I wasn't replacing the guy who was immediately before me. I was replacing Brendan Burke, who was a legend and a tremendous announcer, as everyone knows. So it's, it was – it was weird. It was an accident. I happened to be close when they had an announcer. And if they'd hired somebody that, that was a better match to start, then I never would have gotten that gig in the first place. If I had never gone to this game in Norfolk to visit my friend and say hi, and then to sort of casually drop over drinks afterwards, I wish I could get back into announcing. I just don't know how to do it. Maybe I'll get Johnstown a call when I get to Pittsburgh. And then next thing I know, I, I was going to Wheeling. I mean, it, it was, it's weird. I mean, you know, life is funny. It's, it's funny how a lot of us in the industry, even players, hockey operations staff, they have stories that are somewhat similar, except in their lines of work, how they sometimes connected with people that changed, uh, changed their lives. And uh, I'm sure you were in Santander Arena or the Sovereign Center as yeah. it was at the time, uh, many a time, and you have been back since many a time, uh, just coming down, popping down from uh, Allentown to say hello. Uh, any good memories of your time coming to Reading when you were with Wheeling or any of them, <laughs> any of them since then? Uh, were, you're not allowed to mention that you were in the building for the Cody Wido game. That's my one. You're yeah, not allowed yeah, to. I was, <laughs> I, I was there and I, I kind of bounced around on the Wheeling broadcast on that. But um, I, I, it might have been my first game there in, in Reading because they didn't, Wheeling and Reading didn't play each other until January or February, my first year. You know, they're rivals. The schedule was really weird. And, yeah. and so we went out there and, you know, they were a Kings and Bruins at that time. 
but obviously there was a lot of Flyers stuff around. And this was at a time when I didn't know that I would be moving, you know, to the general region and, and would be part of the Flyers family. Eventually I was with the Penguins farm club then. And, uh, uh, Wheeling had a pretty bad game then. And, uh, my boss with Wheeling was on vacation with his wife in Las Vegas. And he was at a theater, you know, watching Cirque du Soleil or something, but he was texting me. <laughs> and Michael Lee Teslak was the goalie for Wheeling and he was not having a good game and he was getting lit up and they were, and, and my, my, my boss was texting, ah, oh, you know, four to one or five to one or whatever it was. And, uh, and so I think that was one of my first games there. But what, what, what we would do is, you know, from, and I, I still drive to some of the games, but from Pittsburgh to Reading, it would be stupid for me to go from Pittsburgh to Wheeling to take the bus over to Reading. So I would drive separately and I would meet them there. And the, the Wheeling Nailers at that time, and I don't know how they do it now, but they would frequently end up leaving kind of last minute. And then they'd end up getting into some traffic or whatever issue on the way there on the turnpike and I'd be the only one there and then somebody with the Reading staff would come to me you know is your team coming it's 545 and you know we don't know if we need to delay the game and I mean I had my coach's cell phone number but you know I, I wasn't necessarily going to bug him on the bus you know I maybe would text him but you know I, I don't know how much we were doing texting then either. I mean, I had a cell phone, but it was 2008. So technology was different. But anyway, you know, I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to bug them. I mean, if they're on their way, you know, they, you talk to them, fine. I mean, I don't know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that happened two or three times. And there was, there was one game where I think they were considering doing a 7.30 or 7.45 start. And our coach, Greg Pahalski, said, no, just put on the skates, let's go. We don't want to make this any later than it is. And I don't think it's that big a deal. Then they go out there and they get blasted six to one, you know, so warmups do kind of <laughs> make a difference, but that was always a, dr a, a drama. Whenever Wheeling would play at Reading, they'd always show up last second. And I was the only one there because I had driven separately and gotten their way earlier. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds about right for some of the, some of the, some of the experiences that have happened in the last uh, three or four years. And there's ones a lot more famous uh, than even that. Um, this is when you were, it was either right at the start of your Adirondack tenure or uh, at the start of your Lehigh Valley tenure. The year's kind of uh, losing me here for a sec, but uh, Ryan Crothers, who's the Royals all-time leading point scorer, was once told uh, to come out, essentially to, he'd be coming out of retirement to be the 10th forward, and they were going to, uh, to Wheeling that night, and hey, bring your skates with you, you're coming out of retirement, you're our all-time leading scorer, you can contribute. Hops on the bus and then he puts up a three-point game in West Banco Arena. So it's uh, it's not too out of the ordinary that some weird weird travel stories and you know arriving late has happened uh, even in the AHL as you know. But uh, it feels like the 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 best stories might be reserved for the coast. Well, I remember you and I were trading texts when we were trying to get uh, Eric Canodal up to our <laughs> place, and he went from Reading to Wheeling to to the airport. I think he or no, he had a driver. Or did he fly? We, we, it was, it was going to be one or the other. Oh. And he got, he got there to Bridgeport and I, and, and we didn't, I didn't know if he was going to make it in time and we needed an extra D and he got there. I saw him at like 5:45 or 5:50, you know, and asked him, when'd you get here? And he said, oh, five minutes ago, he's, you know, ready to play. I mean, that, that's how travel works. But on the topic of, of uh, coming out of retirement or last second pinch hitters in the East DHL, which you have so many of sometimes you need to talk at some point with the Phantoms uh, video coach, Bill Downey, 
because he played three games for Reading, and I don't know, and, and he played a couple for Wheeling. He wasn't that much of a player. He was just a guy that they would grab whenever. And uh, he had stories of getting picked up. And I, it might have been with Redding or maybe Wheeling, but he'd get picked up on the turnpike on their way on the road <laughs> at 2 in the morning. He'd just uh, be at some rest area. whole bus was asleep. They pull in. He gets on the bus. They, they pull into the place wherever they're going to. And the whole team is looking at him going, who's this guy? How do you get on the bus? And then, and then he would play three games for Redding or whoever. So Billy has some stories. Stories. You, just, talk with, you, you should really talk with Billy Downey sometime, too, because his stories are hilarious. I'm writing it down here on the uh, ever-expanding list of who needs to talk about some yes. ECHL stories and great ECHL stories. One of, my, one of my favorites, and this is by no means one of the best stories, but uh, it was one of my first weeks with the team in 2017. And uh, Alex Krusenitsky, James DeHaas, and Steven Swavely were all sent down that day as the Royals – are headed up to uh, to Glens Falls, and I don't think I knew I that they were. Yes. Yeah, and they uh, there's a convenient Lowe's or Home Depot up in Allentown near uh, off 222, and uh, that was the meeting spot for them to just you know <laughs> they, just, they just hopped right on the bus. They parked their cars or they got an Uber over or whatever it was. They in the Home Depot or the Lowe's. I really can't remember which one it was. It's one of the two, and uh, they hop on the bus and those guys, when they hop on the bus like that are conquering heroes and everybody could not be more thrilled to see uh, three of the best ECHL ECHL players that could be on the Royals for, uh, for that game uh, coming down from the AHL. So you're with well, me. You, know, you, you mentioned those guys. And I mean, this, this is not news to anyone, but you know, they're, they're tremendous hockey players. It, it takes flexibility to be able to do what those guys do because they desperately want to be in the AHL. And then to get sent down, that's disappointing, but you got to shake it off, you know, push through it and bring a positive attitude to the team that you're joining. And, and the only way to get back up is to play well. And, you know, pouting about being sent down is not going to help anyone. And you, you know these guys, Crucial Niski, DeHaas, and Swaveland. I mean, these are three of the best people you could ever – I mean, you just said that, and it just sort of occurred to me, man, we have some really good guys. I yeah. mean, and those three are – three of the very tops, three of my very favorite people. And they're guys that, you know, they, they come up and a lot of times, Crucial Niski or Swavely, they're the 13th forward. They're, they're watching up in the press box in the booth. I point this way because they're to my right. Yes, you that's know. correct. <laughs> I mean, you know where the, how the booths are set. Oh, yeah. they're, they're right over to my side and looking at me and they can hear me. And, and James Dahas was a 7th D for so many games. And he's good and he can play. But he was on an AHL contract, and the NHL contract guys are going to play before DeHaas does, even sometimes if DeHaas' performance is better. And he knows that, and he gets it. And so sometimes he's with us, and he's going to sit for three weeks waiting for his turn. And then, you know, or he's not getting a turn, so he's going to get shipped down to Reading to play a game. You know, that's, that's not easy to do because these guys desperately want to play. And it's fun for them when they go to Reading because now, you know, it's totally or crucial in this game. They're on your top line. They're your best guy. You know, when they play for us, they're getting 10 minutes of ice time. Swavel and Crucial Niski are fourth-line guys. And, and, I think, and you don't even have a fourth line in Reading. <laughs> yes, uh, they were pulling what the Tampa Bay Lightning pulled. Uh, when we release this, it'll probably be about a week. Uh, but what the Tampa Bay Lightning pulled in game two last night where they had ejections, and I saw uh, someone from the Hockey News tweeted uh, that they're playing beer league hockey. They're playing three they're playing three lines and an extra. And the first thought that came through my head was, 
And it's not barely <laughs> cocky. That's, that's the ECHL. <laughs> Ten forwards, three lines, and an extra. So, uh, yeah, and when Swavely comes down, he's playing 20-something minutes a night as a forward. And in the well, end, then he'd come up, and I and I and I talk to him about it, and I, you know, I'd say, "How was it?" You know, looks like you're getting a lot of time. He's like, "Oh man, I was tired." He's not prepared for it. If he's been with us, he's, you know, he hasn't been playing 25 minutes a game. And Alex Krusoniski, who's so quick, and he just recently retired, and we miss him all as a player in the Flyers organization uh, from two years ago and the year before. But um, Alex told me once in the PPL at the PPL Center at PPL Center that. The difference between the ECHL and the AHL was that in the AHL, he's a sprinter because he's out there for 40 seconds and 45 seconds, and then he might sit for a while uh, because of his line roll. And in the ECHL, when you're essentially rolling three lines and the extra forwards getting you know, gadgeted in at certain places, he's playing 20-plus minutes a night, and he said it's more like he's running the Boston Marathon over the course of two and a half hours where – he, he said conserving is a is, – it's weird to say conserving is a strong word, but he did say that, that he wasn't conserving energy because it was too strong, but that he was uh, 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 making sure that his body was prepared enough for the third period or overtime when he might be completely gassed if he had used the sure. same amount of effort that he would on an AHL shift all the time. Uh, that right. There's no slacking, but just that – he had to he had no, to prepare his different. body a different way. Yeah, it's different. I mean, a starting pitcher versus a relief pitcher. Starting pitcher that goes five, six, seven innings, and a reliever that goes one. You can't, you know, give everything you have in the first inning if you're going to go for six or seven. That's just how it works, and how your body is is um, trained for. And now these guys like Swavely, you know, who gets all the double shifts and. You throw him back on defense when you run out of D and he says, I don't even know what I'm doing back there. And, you know, he told me great stories about that too. You know, they, they have to be able to do both first line to fourth line. You know, I, I don't think that's easy at all. And, and it, you know what, it's not that different. I mean, it's a little different, but there are similarities with some of the, the Phantoms guys that go up to the Flyers too, you know, Connor Bunneman is is not as much of a fourth line guy with the Lehigh Valley Phantoms. And Andy Andrioff, who's a veteran, he's a first line guy with the Phantoms. If he gets in the lineup with the Philadelphia Flyers, it's on the fourth line and it's a different role and it's a different game. So that's that that I I really feel like you can't overstate how tricky that is for some guys to be able to do, and other guys pick up on it really well. Misha Vorobiev could never pick up on it. And, you know, he'd look okay or good or great in his time with the Phantoms. He'd go up with the Flyers and that fourth line role or maybe a third line a little bit. And, and he'd kind of lay an egg with Philadelphia. And they, and they just wanted him to get there. And, and we know you can do this. And, and eventually they parted ways. And Vorobiev is not part of the Flyers organization anymore. And he's over in the KHL playing right now. He scored a goal the other day. But he could not pick up and really carry through on that fourth line role with Philadelphia. It was not working for him. And so for the guys that can do it, I think you, you can't overstate how, how critical that is and how, how tough that can be. It had to be enjoyable for you uh, to see the number of Phil, a number of Lehigh Valley Phantoms prospects that made an impact in the bubble uh, more than, a, a, I think it was more than a dozen. You'll know the exact number here uh, that ended up 
receiving play, playing time, former uh, Lehigh Valley Phantoms players, former Phantoms players in the bubble. So what was your experience like on a nightly basis, like uh, every yeah. fan in the world, uh, watching guys that you know personally and well uh, succeed in the bubble with the Flyers on their playoff run of the second round? Well, I mean, you, you look at the, the overtime goals, the, the first couple that they scored with Phil Myers and, and Scott Lawton and, you know, Phil Myers, I, I, you know, they, they got him. They didn't know what they had when they got him. And, he, and it turned out that he was going to be terrific. And I mean, he was undrafted. He was overlooked in the draft, a six foot five right-handed shot who can skate like crazy. And he's still big, but you know, it, he, there was something that was amiss in his game at that time. And he went undrafted. The Flyers got, the Flyers didn't know what they had. They were kind of laughing about like, we thought he could be okay. But then all of a sudden he turned great in major juniors and he's such a good kid. I mean, he's, he's, and, and I mean, I say that about so many guys, but it, it's, it's true with him. And I, I couldn't have been more happy for him. And, and Scott Lawton, who's had his ups and downs, who, you know, came, came back to the Phantoms a couple of different times because he was struggling and trying to find his game. It's, it's been a battle for him to push all the way through where he could be a guy that could be relied on. And, you know, he'd just been a scratch for Philadelphia, what, the game before or two games before that. And then he comes in there and scores that, that overtime goal. And I go all the way back to meeting him when he was 18 years old. And he came over to the Adirondack Phantoms on a tryout contract. And he was at the Queensbury Hotel for like three weeks at the end of the year, <laughs> you know, kind of going, you know, I, I was in Philadelphia, I was in Voorhees, now I'm here in this little town. And, uh, and he scores his, uh, his first pro goal, you know, way back at the end of the season, that was the lockout season. So 2012, 2013, the Adirondack Phantoms, we began with Sean Couturier and Braden Shen and, uh, and Zach Ronaldo. They had all come down to Adirondack because they were eligible while the Flyers weren't playing. So we were kind of NHL light. The NHL kept playing while the NHL was on the lockout, and we had some legit NHL players for, for all the NHL teams. They all had the three or four guys who would have been in the NHL, but instead they were eligible to play in the American League. And by the end of that season, Scott Lawton came to us at 18 years old and, you know, seemed like a good kid and was polite. And then, you know, and at PPL Center in 2014, he scores the first goal in PPL Center history. And by two years later, you could see now he's really a smart player. Now he's, he's getting it. But then he still had some ups and downs. And he came back to the, uh, the Lehigh Valley Phantoms for a few weeks. So I just think about the, the long road for Scott Lawton to, to get where he is. It doesn't, just because you're a first rounder doesn't mean you're automatically going to be a great NHL player. It takes work and you're not necessarily going to be a first line guy and Lawton isn't. And then I, I also saw some of the success of a guy like Nick Obey-Cubell who early in the season was not playing well with Lehigh Valley and he wasn't scoring much. He had like three goals and one assist or something by November. He was benched for a game after he had had an off night, a healthy scratch. You know, Connor Bunneman and Carson Chorinsky were getting these looks with Philadelphia. And I, I was looking at it, and I, I think we all knew this could be Obey Cubell's role for the tinking, and he's not jumping on it because he's not playing well. And by his own admission, he wasn't playing well. And, and you go all the way back to September, and he was coming off of, I thought, a pretty good season the year before. In September or October, whenever it was, he didn't make Philadelphia. He was put on waivers. I would have given it better than a 50-50 shot that Obey Cubell was not going to be on the Phantoms because I thought he was going to get claimed on waivers. A lot of guys do not, you know, 99% of the guys don't get claimed. 
but I, I thought Obey Kivel could get claimed. And then a couple of days later, I was, you know, he, there he was, and I was chatting with him. And I said, you know, nice, nice to see you, although I didn't know if I was, I was going to. And, and so maybe there was an emotional impact there of not making the team and also 30 other teams saying not interested. Now you got a lot of other teams saying, man, we should have taken that kid because he, you know, he turned into something because he's, he's fast and he's aggressive and he's physical, he, you know, maybe more physical than, than we kind of knew at the time uh, for part of his Lehigh Valley tenure. And, and he contributed and he was absolutely legitimate with Philadelphia. And I think about Carter Hart too. And, and, you know, his two months with Lehigh Valley and, you know, he wasn't good, you know, by, by um, mid November, his goals against average was over four in the American league. So, and I see all these Flyers fans who say, why didn't we bring up Carter Hart earlier? I mean, he could have <laughs> saved our season. I'm like, he, he, he was getting beat high glove every time, you know, all the time gets pulled from, a, you want to, you want to bring him up to the Flyers right after he got pulled in a game with the Phantoms. I mean, it took an adjustment. Now that you knew that there was some talent there and so athletic and so smart, but now I, I, when he was called up, it was, he'd only done well with the Phantoms for a couple of weeks. And even when he was called up in December and they were having all that goalie nonsense there and, you know, they just changed from Ron Hextel to Chuck Fletcher. They just brought out Scott Gordon. I mean, you know, it, it was all chaos. And when he went up, his last game with the Phantoms, he gave up five goals in the loss at Wilkes-Barre. So it's not, I mean, he had been lighting it up the week before, but his last game was not a great one either. And then he goes in and does what he does. And I, I didn't, I, I knew he was good, but I, I don't think we knew he was going to be this good, even with all the hype that he came in, just based on how he had struggled at, his, at the beginning part of his career with the AHL, which, you know, kind of goes to show, let's, you know, slow down if a guy is not putting up the big numbers in the AHL to start his career, because, you know, some guys take a little while to grow into it. And he was, Carter Hart was telling me, and I, I, I want to say in October, November, because um, I saw it in a newspaper article and I chatted with him about it. He was living with Connor Bunneman. They had their electricity turned off. I mean, they're new. They're, they're, they're learning how to live on their own. Oh, we got to pay our bills. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> so they were living in the dark for a night, put candles up and, like, you know, that, that, that's the whole adjustment that you get into, you know, going into pro hockey. So, you know, there's a lot to learn. And, uh, I'm, well, first of all, have you ever had your lights turned off of your electricity at any point in your life? It's happened. It happened once with me and it was cause it was, a the, the house I was living in when I was in college, uh, I'll, I'll shout out my buddy, Robbie. He, uh, he decided that for six months he would take everyone's payments for the electricity, but the, he forgot, <laughs> he forgot to right, make right. the payment. And then sure enough, his bank account was drained pretty close to zero when he realized that, uh, oh, they shut the electricity off and everybody's really angry at me. So I guess I'll have to uh, make my bank account zero and pay six months of backlog bills that are old. Had, that's my, that's my story. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. I've had the cable TV shut off when I forget to pay that bill, but never the electric that I can remember. Well, actually, no. Um, the new house that we moved into, we did not. We were slow in uh, in paying uh, the electric, and we hadn't moved into it yet, you know. But so we came. We were moving stuff, and I hit the garage door opener, and nothing happened. And well, okay, well, I got a key. We can go around the other side. And I mean, you know, because I I, I want to. Our realtor told us. Hey, make sure you get these bills changed over before 
your closing date on May 1. He didn't say like, or, or they'll shut it off on you. You should have woken me up some. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll take care of it. I thought there'd, there'd be like a two-day gap or something. So our closing date was May 1, and we're coming over again May 4 or something like that. And yeah, it was off. And, <laughs> and I called my wife, Teresa, and I said, yeah, we, I guess we need to set up the electricity. Let's, let's call PPL and do that because we got nothing here. It's a little dark. So, so yes, I actually have. But we, thankfully, we weren't living here yet. We were still in mid-move. It, uh, it makes me wonder if it ever might happen to Kirillus Demanko at the NHL level. Right. Uh, he was the Royals Flyers affiliated representative in the bubble, and you had a chance to see him play a little bit late. And I know we exchanged some text messages probably back in February at this point or right. January, whenever it was. Uh, I think it was February um, when he was called up. Uh, he was really, really good here. And Felix yeah, yeah. Sandstrom was good, but it took a little while to battling through some minor, you know, bang ups and stuff like that to start to come around near the end of the season, especially. Uh, but Karel was really good here, and the Royals fans just adore any Karel Ustamenko content. So uh, he was up with the Phantoms uh, for a few weeks, and he's one funny cat. So what did you think of him in the few weeks uh, that well, you've had him first, up here? First, I, I like how how engaging he can be for a guy that. Really, I mean, let's be honest. He can't speak English. Like, like he can speak about four words, right? You know, maybe more than that. He understands, but but not much. Um, but he engages with others, with a radio guy, whoever. You know, he's smacking me on the 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 legs there with his stick when he's coming off, and he says hello. There, there are a lot of guys who just sort of, and I I might do this too if I was in a world where everyone's speaking Russian, you know, and I can't even really communicate. It's hard, um, and. But I also think he really enjoyed coming up to the Phantoms for multiple reasons, not just because he's getting acknowledged as being a, a good player worth that opportunity, but we had a lot of Russian influence in the locker room. So now he had somebody to talk to, you know, in, in, in his native language, because we had three other guys that could speak Russian. Maxim Bel uh, Sushko is from Belarus also, and Misha Vorobiev and German Rubsov. We had four guys who could speak Russian in the Phantoms locker room, whereas in Reading, it was kind of on an island, right? And, and then he, he plays that first game in, I guess it was in Syracuse, was the first game. And, you know, he was under siege the entire first period, and he's flying around all over the place. He's a little wild in his game, but he stopped almost everything thrown at him with 20 shots on goal. And he was the only reason the Phantoms stayed in that game. They were down one nothing in the first and it, it should have been three or four, easily. And so that, that really kind of got him into uh, the AHL, with a, I think, with a bang. And then he goes back down to Reading. But he was so good in the AHL that the Flyers felt comfortable trading J.M. Barube, who was, a, who was a veteran goalie with us. They trade him to the Rangers organization. He goes to Hartford specifically to make way for Ustamenko. They brought in Barube because they weren't sure that these guys were AHL ready. Let's just start them in, in the ECHL and let them grow into it some, which I think is a great philosophy, especially for goalies. And, and so now they see what they have. Okay, now we can, we can trade Barube and bring up Usti. And look, his, his, he's a good example of what I'm talking about when I reference Carter Hart and his struggles because Usti was not great. He had that one really good period. And I, I don't even know how good he was. He was wild and he ended up, ends up stopping the puck, but I'm, I'm going, this guy's all over the place. And, and, and 
he's going to have to settle his game down. His numbers with the Lehigh Valley Phantoms were not great. His last game that he played uh, was a 5-5 tie, and then he loses in the shootout 6-5. And a couple of the goals that he gave up were not great goals. I'm, I'm looking at box scores because I'm trying to fill this in my memory banks. But, but you look at what he can do when he gets his confidence, what, what he's doing in, in Reading. And, you know, you look at a guy like when Anthony Stolarz was there, and he's saying, look, the game's not that much different. These guys can shoot. But on top of that, it can be a more wide-open game. So it's a, it's a big workout for a goalie. It's not necessarily harder in the AHL in some ways for some goalies because it can, you can have some real track meet nights in the ECHL that you're not getting. The AHL is well-known very well known, especially in the NHL circles. The AHL is known for being a clogged up game. And sometimes you can have some sort of game. I mean, especially the way Hershey used to play, you can have games where the shot count is 22 to 20 for the whole game. You know, just it, sometimes it can be really exciting and wild, but a lot of times it, it, they want discipline, they want structure because they want to teach these guys that kind of structure to get onto the NHL, which is maybe a little different than the ECHL, which can be more wide open. And so for a goalie, you're looking at these two-on-O's coming at you and going, what do I do now? Um, so I, I, I think that Ustamenko's numbers in, in the ECHL are reflective of, of who he is, what he can be, the reason why they brought him up. I'm not overly concerned with what his numbers were uh, in the AHL. Now, the shooters are going to be a little bit better, obviously. But I, I, I think that there can, you can make that link to what Carter Hart had in the AHL, where he struggled and became great. And, and I mean, but it's, it's on the, it's on the mentality too. And Carter Hart, ha, you know, he's well known for having that, that the, the psychological sound approach. Elaine Vigneault thought about pulling them in that, that one game where it was three, one or whatever it was. And, and he, and he said, he, he just stayed, he looked in his eyes and saw that Carter was okay. Usti has carries that kind of confidence about him as well with a different kind of personality, but I, I can see Usti being the kind of kid that that maybe doesn't get so completely rattled, you know, when you give up a a, a bad goal or a couple goals. I, I don't know. I mean, you knew him better than I did. I mean, and, and and it's hard to get to know a guy when there's the language barrier too. And and especially when the season's cut short three weeks or four weeks yeah, after yeah, the yeah. supposed and uh, Tom McCollum, who the whom the Flyers organization acquired was excellent with the Royals and had a 1.8 goals against average. And now he's overseas, but yeah, Usti recovered very nicely. Anytime that if he had a, he didn't have many bad games, he was like 14 and two at home. Right, uh, right. If, if the season kept going, he would have set, and he was here, he would have set the uh, Royals goaltender home wins record. Uh, that was actually set by John Muse back a few years ago. He was oh, seven. Sure, sure. 17 and John Muse was 17 and two at Santander Arena and Ustamanko was 14 and two and there was 10 seven whatever it was seven eight nine ten home games left in the season at that point but yeah I can just imagine the experience of him being up there for two months taking shots from Voracek and Claude Giroux and James Van Riemsdyk and legitimate right. NHLers is going to help not only instill confidence that he deserves to be in that situation but now he's facing the best, some of the best top six forwards and top four defensemen in the world that he's trying well, to set up on a practice basis. And like as a black ace might, when the Flyers yeah. go on a playoff run, I, I could imagine there'd be some similarities from past years of your experience too. 
Yeah, I, but, you know, and I, I don't know how it was working in the bubble, but I do know that the Black Aces, they're not always really practicing with the top guys. You know, they're, I, I envi- and heck, the Flyers, you know, they had so many games compacted so tightly yeah. that they were barely practicing at all, whereas Ustamenko and Alex Lyon and Mark Friedman and Morgan Frost, you know, and Andy Andrioff and Andy Walensky, I think those are the bubble guys, Connor Bonham and two, uh, well, it's up to us. We're, we're going and skating again. They're, you know, hopping on a bus and going over to the practice rink and, you know, they're getting hard practices, whereas the rest of the flyers are doing morning skates. So I don't know how much Claude Giroux time uh, Usti would have seen in, in the bubble. Maybe you know, he would have before, been there and experienced before, Yes. But, but I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, in a Voorhees training camp situation, he probably would get a little more because they get mixed and matched. But here with the play, you know, and maybe, you know, and some in the preseason, you know, because they had their training camp in Voorhees before they went to Toronto. So we got some. But my hunch is that, you know, just because the Flyers weren't able to do that many skates, it wasn't really two months of Claude Giroux shots. Yeah, you're right taken. on. He's taken, he's taken a lot of Connor Bunneman and Mark Freeman and Mandy Andrioff shots, which isn't bad either. <laughs> but it's it was probably, you know, the kind of the seven or eight of those guys every day. And I thought about those guys, too, because the other guys are making all the headlines. And, oh, how hard is it for those guys in the bubble? Well, how about being Alex Lyon and Kirill Ustamenko and besides, you know, playing ping pong with each other at the hotel, as Husty did on the video <laughs> with Alex Lyon. But besides that, that, that's tougher for them because they're in that same bubble and they don't even get to play in the NHL playoff games. They're just waiting for their turn. And let's be realistic. Usti knows his turn probably isn't going to come things happen. The Flyers used eight goalies a couple of years ago. I mean, an injury or two away, and now he's getting dressed, so it's possible. But for the most part, there was no real light there to show that he was actually going to get into any game action at all. And those guys are pushing through and doing it. That I, I thought about those guys more than I thought about how tough it is for the actual guys that are playing in the games, because at least they get some of that competition and, and glory and the juices and adrenaline of, of playing in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Those guys, they, they had the experience. They were there, but and it was weird because there were no fans. And, you know, I don't even know if they were attending the games or not. I have no idea if, if Usti got to go to the NHL games. I assume he watched from the hotel room. I'm not sure either. I know sometimes there would be yeah. a few scratches that were up that you could see on TV, but that's interesting. Right. I, I well, didn't think – would be one, right? I, I remember seeing Lindblom in the seats. I yeah. never saw any of the other guys. I wonder how far they had to sit apart from each other too, and why the camera right. may not show. That's a, I, I'm not sure either. We'll have to uh, we'll have to get to the bottom of that at some point. Right. The uh, Royals and the Phantoms and the Phantoms and the Flyers share uh, the closest geographical uh, uh, distance between EH, ECHL to AHL and AHL to NHL and even coast to NHL if you wanted to drive the 75 miles south and east. How do Phantoms front office members like yourself, Phantoms fans, view the fact that they can get players sent down so easily and also brought up from the ECHL uh, to the AHL so easily? Yeah, unless you're Eric Canodal and you're <laughs> – Taking over from wheeling, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it is so advantageous and you see the differences with the other organizations, you know, the Providence Bruins affiliate is the Atlanta gladiators, you know, the Rangers used to be with Greenville all the time. And we see it when we're on the road and sometimes it's a longer hike 
to get a player from Reading to meet us in Hartford, or Reading is up in Portland, and we got to get him down to Allentown. You know, I, I remember when we brought in Max Willman, and and the Reading Royals were on their holiday break, and and he was at home in in Massachusetts, right? And and got on a plane, but had some sort of delay, and then met us in Allentown, but he got there late, so he couldn't even practice. So that flight to Allentown was for nothing because we were going to Charlotte. He could have just gone straight to Charlotte anyway. <laughs> and so from, from Allentown getting on the plane, going to Charlotte, and, and then jumping into the games there. So sometimes there is some travel involved, even though the teams are next to each other. But when we're in the same area, it, it's, it's so advantageous that sometimes we'll find out after a morning skate, hey, somebody with Philly uh, has the flu. You know, I mean, different injuries or, you know, life happens and we need a guy. And so whoever gets a driver and they come down and and then, you know, uh, K-Mac is called in Reading and, well, we're running a little short. So bring up Swavely again. <laughs> we'll get him, get, we, we just sent him down two days ago. Bring him back up. I think I think it's a little bit of a headache for the guys to have th- that ability to travel because if it was a flight, then we would just skate short because it's it's too short notice to get a guy up there. Um, and and I, our, our fans know what's going on. I mean, and, and we talk about guys that are coming in at four or five o'clock and, and it's, it's so convenient. And a guy like, what was Swavely living like kind of part way between Reading and Allentown? I, th- I feel like he told me that. I can't remember for sure. Yeah, he was living he didn't know where in he would be on a given day. I think he was, I think he still lives in Allentown. And I know Rob Michael, lived who was with the Royals for pretty much all last year defenseman Rob Michael lived in Allentown so because he didn't know at the start of the situation and they said you know hey you might want to look into getting to an apartment and so we got an apartment in Allentown because that's where he wanted wants to be obviously but also because (laughs) heck like he didn't know whether he was going to be in Allentown or Reading on a daily basis and from experience it's a lot easier to drive from Allentown to Reading in the morning than it is from Reading to Allentown because there's more commuters going from Reading to Allentown than Allentown to Reading if that plagues any part of it but yes yeah, Swavely was living up there I did I I thought he was partly through but I I don't know I, I it's so long ago that I've had, I mean I might even be thinking of the year before because we've had Swaves around off and on forever oh Swaves is here again you know and, and <laughs> by by the way Stephen Swavely is immensely popular he's a good guy we've had him a lot and, and he's played well in his time with the Phantoms. So he's, he's you know, as, as well-liked as he is in his hometown in Reading, he's, he's not just respected in the locker room. Like a guy like James DeHaas, I think our fans kind of overlook him a little bit because he spends so much time in the press box, you know, and then gets in the lineup and, oh, okay, James DeHaas is here. I'm like, well, he's been here. But he's just been practicing for three weeks waiting for his turn. But Steven Swavely maybe getting a few more reps in there and and does so well on the faceoffs. There are some pretty, you know, they, they have a pretty good following among our fans that and especially for guys that don't even play that many minutes because they're on that fourth line role, but they still get out there and and impress. And I think they bring that kind of energy that you were talking about earlier with Crucial Misty as well when they're going out there and playing so hard. Max Wilman, I think, became pretty popular fairly quickly just for his speed and and his effort and his energy and his smarts he's a smart player out there and I, I think he you know our, our fans are watching for the new guy that that they hadn't seen before maybe some of the other fans have traveled to Reading we have some fans that go to games in both venues 
and look, if he looks like he holds his own or does even better than holding his own, he's going to catch some attention and, and fans are going to go, yeah, he, he was fast. Wow. Why, why didn't we have him before? And Max Wilman was, of course, so good that uh, and, and so impressive that it became very obvious. We, we got to get this guy to an NHL contract because otherwise somebody else is going to take him because he's that good. He, he was uh, he was scratched for three of the first four weeks of the season. He played in one of the – I can't remember the exact number because you're right, it's been almost a year at this point, which is – I, I want to uh, say it was like 10, 9 out of 10. It, it was uh, – Because yeah. you told me the story, and, and I said, well, if this guy was, was kind of a scrub, then what happened? <laughs> you know? And, and, well, I mean, they didn't know necessarily what they had or, he, you know, he wasn't, you know, quite at that place. I even asked Max about it, but, you know, he sort of deflects – and, you know, I mean, he's like any other player. They want to play. And so all he can say is, you know, no, I wasn't hurt. Yeah, you know, I, I was ready to go, but, you know, they weren't ready for me yet, whatever it was. Yeah. And then, and then he goes up from there when he gets in the lineup. Then he's so good that within a month and a half when the Phantoms needed a player, I, I didn't have Max Willman on my radar. I, I, you know, he wasn't even in your lineup for the first month of the year. You know, so I would have thought a different four. Well, okay, we got a couple of guys down maybe bring up somebody from Reading, who would that be? And there are, you know, so many different options. Max Wilman was not on that list in, in my own head, but obviously, you know, uh, Kirk McDonald had said good things about him and told Scott Gordon he might fit in well, especially with what you're looking for on the fourth line with the style of game that Wilman plays. And, yeah. and indeed, correct. And uh, I, I found the game he played on October 15th in at Newfoundland, which was the third game of the year. The Royals were in Newfoundland for a full week to start the season. And you've been to the, you know, the rock. Hey, I miss St. And, John's. St. John's, I, I don't miss making that trip because it takes forever to get there. But, but St. John's is such a great town. And I know that you, I, I know you're the same. You, you enjoy it when you're there. You don't enjoy the process of yeah. getting there. Yeah. And after uh, six Six not six nights, seven days. Uh, it can it wears on even the uh, the uh, the hardiest soul. So that final game was a seven to three loss for the Royals uh, at Newfoundland. It was Kirk McDonald called it the sleepover that went too long game. Uh, that, <laughs> uh, he said it was like a sleepover that went too long was the official quote. And then he didn't play for a month. He played in Worcester, and uh, I remember it was either I was talking with with. K-Mac or, or our assistant coach, Nick Luca, who Phantoms fans know. And uh, one of them said, uh, he is ready and he will play very well the games he's with us. Like not, not, you know, actually believing that, not saying it as a pregame interview soundbite that might end up being true or might not, but they said it off the air and they're like, he's going to be good for us. And he had an assist that game. And then he scored a toe drag goal past three guys through the top of the crease Two nights later at Adirondack, when the Royals had a thin lineup, they'd had a number of gruesome injuries the game before, a morning game with gruesome injuries in, uh, in Worcester, in which Wilman started his run. And then he finished with basically a point per game with the Royals, and he had a five-point game later in the season uh, when he was down for a weekend. His first game back, he had five points uh, uh, at Adirondack again. And uh, now he's got a golden retriever puppy with his uh, – with his significant other up in Barnstable, Massachusetts. And I think they're, they've moved back to Allentown or they moved back somewhere. So in Pennsylvania, so uh, he's ready, but uh, I might be opening well, up. With, with Lehigh Valley, he, I mean, I don't know how many times he hit the post or had near misses. And he was just, what am I going to score this first goal in the AHL? And then you saw it. Yes. Right. Cause, cause that was, 
that was the period where I let you do some some play-by-play in January. So it was appropriate because you know him better than I do. I mean, I met him and chatted a few times, but you got to call Max Wilman's first AHL goal as as the guest announcer. I thought that was pretty appropriate. <laughs> he he did too after the game. Uh, that was that was special for him, I know. And he had a breakaway earlier in that game, and I think he put the breakaway right. off the post. And like you're saying, and then all of a sudden he was perhaps one of the best forwards in the Phantoms lineup for certain uh, uh, certain oh, yeah. stretches uh, of the season. There there were a couple of games where I think he was the best player. I mean, that's, that's how good he was. So, and that, and that goes all the way back to what I'm talking about earlier about Carter Hart and he had his struggles. Like here's, here's a guy that in practices was not blowing the doors off, was not really impressing Kirk McDonald enough to even get in the lineup at all in the ECHL. And then a couple months later, here he is in the NHL. And, you know, Max Willman's career has been kind of goofy as well with, you know, his high school and the college and, you know, yeah, he's got potential, and then he's, well, maybe not quite fulfilling that potential for a little bit, and now he's getting an ECHL contract, and, and he's not even in the lineup, you know, I mean, it, different guys, there's a different story for everyone, you know, and some guys just get it, and, and, and they need little things to work on, but they immediately impress, you know, Phil Myers, just a raw talent, and Oscar Lindblom, who I've been thinking about a lot, of course, all year, who was so impressive when he was 19. When we get a guy like Joel Farabee, for example, when, when, you know, who, who gets it, who knows when he make, makes a mistake, and when he says what he did wrong before Scott Gordon even tells him, when he's like nodding in agreement, as opposed to, I think a lot of the young players, they get that deer in the headlights look and, wait, what are you talking about? I should have been where? You know, but when we get a guy who just gets it and completes Gordon's sentences before he finishes and does it, like very early in his career, he's compared to Oscar Lindblom because that's what Lindblom was doing when he was 19 years old. His first pro game was actually in St. John's also. We took him uh, on the trip, and, and, that's when, and that's when I did my first interview with him. And he was so nervous because he just came over from Sweden. Yeah, I know English, but I'm not that good. And I, 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 I bet you're better than you think you are. And he talked for six minutes, you know, which is a nice long interview. And anyway, so that, that's, that's how well-respected Oscar Lindblom is. Before he, you know, he became the talk of the NHL and such an incredible story when he got cancer, and that was just a gut punch when I found out about that. Before all of that, that's the, the guy that we would turn back to. Joel Farabee he reminds me of Oscar Lindblom in the way that he gets it. That's what I'd get out of Scott Gordon and Kerry Huffman, our coaching staff. Whenever there's a guy that just understands it, he's the Lindblom. That's how smart Oscar is. And he doesn't, he doesn't show himself that way in many ways, but, but he is. Did you uh, tell him during that pregame interview he was actually closer to his hometown in Sweden when he was in St. John's than he was to the PPL Center? <laughs> you may have. I, I, I know that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if I said that, and, and I might have. I, I, I can't remember. But I, there, there's a good chance that I would have. You know, we had um, – we had Andrew Gordon on our team in 2014 and the year before he played with St. John's and they were in the former Hershey bear, Andrew Gordon as well. And, and when he was in St. John's, they went to the Calder cup final and they were playing against Texas. And so they're flying back and forth. And I, I don't know if he was in Sweden the year before. I, I know he's done some Sweden since then. I think it's since then, but anyway, he was saying, well, we could literally fly to Sweden faster 
than flying back and forth from St. John's to Texas to do these games in the Calder Cup Finals. I might be opening a Pandora's box here, but this is the last uh, last topic I wanted to cover. So uh, you were you were in the building and on the call when uh, former Royal Alex Kurselniski scored in the fifth overtime, and uh, there's been so many great articles, news articles written, good journalism about what the players were doing and they're ordering pizzas and they got to go pick up the pizza. And how's the pizza getting to, uh, into the building in Charlotte. But, um, uh, uh, one's voice is perhaps in the hockey world, not supposed to last for five overtimes effectively. So, uh, how the heck did you keep yourself going for five overtimes and the longest, uh, and Mike, Vecchione, Mike Vecchione's aunt was there and brought and had brought a plate of brownies. And that's, it's like, we're not saving these. They, Brought him to the locker room at the second or third overtime intermission, whatever it was. The guys were getting, you know, a hold of everything. And Alex Lyon had 94 saves in that game. And, you know, you don't go into a playoff game thinking you're going to have five overtimes that night. And, uh, it, it, you know, I, I thought about that some more with the, the Columbus-Tampa Bay game that went five overtimes also when everyone was talking about that. And uh, it passed. The, the, the Columbus – Tampa Bay game passed by a couple minutes the length of game that we had with the Phantoms. And I didn't know if I'd ever see a game like that again, but I did on TV with no fans in the building. Well, we barely had any fans in the building in Charlotte. We had like 300 people there by by the end of the game. I mean, it was a Wednesday night, so it wasn't a huge crowd to begin with. And they they showed shots on the video board of, you know, there was one couple with a baby that was falling asleep. They weren't giving up. It was after midnight and they weren't going to go. They kept their baby there that was asleep at the game, but I, I can tell you, you know, because Charlotte is an old building and, and we're on a spotlight perch way at the very top. And I can tell you, because I've counted 67 steps from the spotlight perch down to the concourse where they have the men's room. I mean, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man that drinks a fair amount of caffeine. You do. So this that, is, is, that is, that this is, is factual. This is an important, <laughs> you know, I mean, at the PPL center, you know, I mean, it's like 15 steps from my booth over to the men's room. It's, it's a very easy walk. Not so much in Charlotte. I would, I would sprint down during a commercial break or an interview or whatever feature that I had, you know, dragged out from my computer. And uh, a couple of our scratched players were sitting at the top, one of the top rows. Uh, Nick Obey-Cubell, who was suspended for three games from a hit earlier in the series, and Will O'Neill, a defenseman. And I'd, I'd sprint past him and, you know, Hey guys, you know, I did that like five different times. <laughs> Just say, you know, say, say something on the way down and say something on the way back. And, and for, you know, kind of a middle-aged overweight guy, I'm in pretty decent shape, able to get up those steps and then get back on the air, you know, and kind of catching my breath at the same time. I, I actually did an interview, you know, you talk about interviews. I did an interview with the athletic because he wanted to talk with me and the Charlotte announcer as well. And he was talking with whoever he could about that game. And I think I disappointed him by saying, you know, the, the game itself, I mean, I was dialed in because I don't want to get the goal wrong when it happens. And so th- there's intensity there, but I've actually been on the air longer. I mean, uh, you know, some baseball double headers that I've done solo, mm-hmm. you know, so, but baseball, the call is different. You're not as dialed up and, you know, a nine to one game in the third inning of game two I'm not exactly belting it out on, on the call, but I have literally been on the air longer. And later, the game ended at 1.09 a.m. I've done double headers till, with rain delays till 2 in the morning. But it is different in hockey. And, you know, for me, 
it was, I, I, I couldn't clearly definitively tell that it was crucial Niski when he scored it. But then I, I saw, um, I, I had called the other line mates, Colin McDonald and Cole Bardrell. And, and so I, I took a guess. I'm, I'm going to guess they completed that line change, and it looks like Crucial Niski to me. And I'm going to say, I'm just going to go for it. And I'm going to say Crucial Niski. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I got to say something. I mean, there's like, like that's, and there's no high five line. So you can't like kind of stall and double check and make sure who's leading the high five line at the bench. It's a mob of players. If you don't and, get and it, I didn't, right I didn't know. For, and so I'm, I'm talking and I'm celebrating and I'm also not 100% positive. I'm pretty sure. And then finally coming out of the pile, Alex Lyon comes and hugs specifically Alex Krushelniski. And that's when I knew I'm now I'm more sure I'm still like only at 99.9. The PA announcer announced Oscar Lindblom. <laughs> and so I heard that and I went, wait, what? No, it was, that, but, you know, and, and so the Charlotte announcer had that as well. He's just called it a phantom's goal. He doesn't know our line so well. And, and then he said it was Lindblom. And he came over to me during the commercial break. Was it Lindblom? And I said, no, Crucial Nuski. So I, I'm just happy that for that historic moment, because I'm never going to get another one of those again, that I didn't botch the call. Because you know how easy it is to not know. And, and so many goals where they're on NBC and they're looking at the replay and they still don't even know. And they have the super slow-mo. Did Voracek get a piece of that? Or I mean, you know, it was a goal where I could pretty much tell who it was. And, and, and I got it right. And I'm just so happy for that because, I mean, it's, I, I think it's important for Crucial Niski. Then I go down to the locker room after that, um, which I don't normally do because I got to get the game story out to the website. Well, you know, it's 1.30 in the morning. You know, I think that can wait. And I go down and Cru Crucial Niski is all sweaty. You know, he sees me and just gives me this big hug and I'm wearing my suit. And now it's all, you know, kind of grainy and I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy for him. and I'm talking with him and Alex Lyon, who made 94 saves, he's laying on the floor, not moving. And, like, the first thing he looks at me, he kind of looks at me and tells me he's not going to do an interview or something. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to interview you, dude. I'm just coming to say hi and congratulate you, <laughs> you know, and we're chatting. Alex Lyon didn't know how many overtimes it was. What was that, like six or seven? All, all he's doing is just getting dehydrated over and over and trying to stop the puck. And And – this isn't quite as much crucial Niski as much as it is other stuff, or, or, or me specifically. The Phantoms had five defensemen that game. You want to talk about playing shorthanded. Sam Moran took an injury in the first period, which he recovered from a year later and then got hurt again. Um, so the Phantoms had 5D for the entire game. They talked about um, – who was it for Columbus? Who had 65 minutes of ice time. It was oh, uh, Steph Jones, Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Phil Myers had 66 minutes because they only had 5D. <laughs> And, and so, and, and we, and, and the other D were around 60 minutes as well. I think Friedman was 62, TJ Breno was at 61, but Phil Myers had 66 minutes of ice time in that game. And I remember the, the, you know, in the first round against the Providence Bruins was um, an overtime game that almost went to the end of the first overtime. And Travis Sanheim had 35 minutes of ice time. And I talked with him about it because we had Sanheim and Limbaugh come down for the playoffs because the Flyers had been eliminated. So now those guys could join us, which was a great opportunity for them and, and a great boost for, for the Phantoms. 
and, and I was talking with Sam Sanheim about that. And he said, well, I, in major juniors, I, I had a double overtime game with the Calgary Hitmen. I played 44 minutes. And I remember looking at him going, come on, that's, that's ludicrous. That's dangerous. Who does that? And then a week later, we had a guy play 66 minutes, and Sanheim was somewhere around. Oh, no, Sanheim was hurt that series, so we didn't have him. Sanheim took a knee hit. And, and Obey Cubell was out with the suspension. So anyway, those those are some of the memories I have. And and then just by, by the time you get, you know, what was also fun and, and funny was the number of listeners that you get. Like Because my Twitter was blowing up by midnight. All these people that didn't know who the, uh, the Phantoms were, were jumping into this game's going to the fourth overtime, now the fifth overtime. I got a, a message from uh, Dan Rezanowski who's the San Jose Sharks announcer. I never, I never communicated with him in my life. And he just sent me a message to say, good job, nice job on the call. Among all, you know, all the other messages and tweets that I had received, that was really nice of an NHL announcer that I'd never met before to reach out to me. And, and, and then after the, after the game, Jason Shia with the Charlotte Checkers, and, um, and he comes over to find out who, who scored the goal, but he also shakes my hand, you know, which I thought was classy. I mean, we both went through a lot. And um, in, in that game. And he's like right next to me on the other side of a spotlight perch there. And it's just awesome. And, and, he, and he shakes my hand and says, we made history. And I'm like, yeah, yeah we did. They, and they, it's, I don't know how the fans in Charlotte knew. Because at two minutes and 58 seconds into the fifth overtime, that's when our game became the longest in NHL history, being the Philadelphia Phantoms game against the Albany River Rats. And they did a countdown. For the 10 seconds at 2.48 into the fifth overtime, there were fans, and I could hear them, 10, 9, 8, you know, and then they cheered. Somebody spread the word within their section or something because it's not like it was up on the video board, hey, this is about to become the longest. They put it up on the video board. It has become the longest. The organ player there, Greasy Keys, he had to skip that game because he was doing something else. I mean, it's a playoff game, so he had whatever other job. He gets out of his job. He comes over. He makes this big triumphant entrance, second or third overtime. Now the organ player is here <laughs> to, to play to play in the game. It's not official until Greasy Keys shows up at the Charlotte Checkers game. So wow. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I have a, there are a lot of different memories and stories, and some of us who are kind of there, you know, we, we bond about it when we go back. You know, me and Alex Lyon and Greg Carey and, and the coaches just – it was, it was a weird night. I, I, I have great memories, you don't, of as much, or the Reading fans don't as much, of the triple overtime I saw, the, the game in, in Reading against Wheeling. And I thought, I, I'm never going to call something like this. It's, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime deal. But, you know, I, and I've always had an affinity for marathon games like that in baseball and hockey and basketball. So it was, it was fun. I don't know if I want to do it every night, but it was fun. And, I, and, I'm, I'm, and, and we had so many listeners with the Phantoms. They had a watch party at Chickies and Pete's next to uh, PPL Center. And there were like five people left <laughs> at the end there. So we got to close the place, guys. Well, this game's not over. It's a watch party, right? There was somebody there who was going to do some sort of um, uh, music performance after the game was over. And I don't know if it was a karaoke thing or a DJ or a musician or what. And they just sort of waited and waited. And eventually they packed up their stuff and went home. The cleaning crew was there watching the game. Our attendance got boosted a little bit at about 1230 because the cleaning crew was there to do a changeover because they were going to have a concert the next day. 
And so there's a group of like 30 cleanup crew that's sitting all down on the one side. It was, it was weird, <laughs> but, but it was fun. And, and, and there was uh, for, for a guy like Crucial Misty to get to be the one that scored that, you know, which is the highlight of his career. And he never was able to become an NHL player, but he scored that one. And his dad, who was an NHLer and an all-star, didn't know how to listen to the away feed on, on AHL Live. So he's listening to Jason Shia, who didn't know that Crucial Niski had scored. So Mike Crucial Niski does not know that, did not know at the time that his own son had scored the goal because he doesn't know how to, he didn't know how to listen to the away broadcast. I, I got it right. If my guy was there for you, if you, you know, <laughs> if, if you needed me, I was there. But he, you know, he, so Alex told me that. I don't know when he told me that, but I thought that was pretty funny too. And it's it's interesting you say have that. I, have I told enough stories here? Oh, I, you know, I, that's what I knew. I was opening the Pandora's box. I, I, I know, said I know. that because it's uh, it's as uh, as good of a memory as you as you'll have in your uh, over playoff hockey overtime broadcasting uh, career. In times you get to do that, um, we've had a couple. Is this oh, your longest interview of these that you've done? No, no. Uh, we had a two hour one that I trimmed to trimmed to about an hour fifteen, but uh, that was the shut up, really. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Usually I'm the one that talks the most. Yeah, we did a two-hour one with one of our former players, Chris Chris Balla, I think it was. And we were we were getting uh, off top. We were getting way off topic though. Stuff I knew that I'd have to probably delete. But uh, this one's gonna be a full, <laughs> this one this one's gonna be a full one because there were some other you know. Hey, I got to tell you this story real quick, and then we'll you can edit this right. You know, one of those things. So that was a, right, that right, was right. a good one. The stuff that was not in the interview, I think I said in the intro, was better than the stuff that was in the interview, which is a. Uh, a key part, but Bob, this is, uh, this has been great and fun. And, uh, I have a few things I got to bring up with you as soon as we stop recording here. So, uh, to, oh, sure. uh Why not? David, I haven't, I have literally not spoken in a broadcast setting since my last game on March 11th. And I'll tell you our last story. My radio equipment is still in the booth at PPL center. I, I haven't gone back. It's still sitting. I assume it's sitting there unless somebody took it. Because <laughs> we had a March 11th game and we were going to have the game on March 13th. And the NBA canceled that night. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were playing Wilkes-Barre both games. And I told the, the Wilkes-Barre announcer, Nick Hart, yeah, because they never played at our place back-to-back like that. And I said, yeah, you're okay to leave your equipment here. It'll be fine because we locked the door. And then after the game was over, uh, then the NBA canceled. And we kind of had a feeling, well, this – we, we don't know if we're going to be coming back. And, and that's how I left the arena. And, and I, I was talking with Mike Ionello, who's the PR guy. And I said, well, uh, I'll see you Friday. Or I, I guess maybe I won't. I don't know. We don't know. And um, and then I, a couple days later, it occurred to me, and I emailed Nick Hart with Wilkes-Barre. Hey, did you get your equipment? <laughs> and he said, yes, I, I didn't leave it there. Because I thought maybe I, I can come back to the building and let you in, and we can figure it out. You know, no. I, I decided I better take this with me. So he had heard about the NBA stuff. I, I was doing my post-game show, so I heard about it a little later. And then after I got off, they said, yeah, they canceled the NBA. And I went, what? You know, it's a, I mean, I'm, I'm just wrapping up a, a Penguins 2-1 to win on a Riley Barber goal over the Phantoms. So anyway, I haven't done one of anything like this at all. Because I haven't been in the Phantoms office. You know, you're in the Redding office. I haven't done anything like this. So it's good to know that I can still talk. At, at all, you know, and, and not not talking princesses and baby sharks with my seven year old. 
I thought it might sneak into this at some point, but I'm glad that the mind stayed, uh, the mind stayed straight enough there. It didn't, you didn't just get off on a tangent about the fifth overtime and something about that you watched on baby shark. So that was, uh, <laughs> that somehow it just, you know, my mind is all intact, relatively yep, speaking, back. right? <laughs> Relative enough. All right, here's my wheeling nailers mug again. Well, I, I'll give it a thumbs down because our fans don't even want to see it. But no, <laughs> no but they appreciate it. I mean, they that's, appreciate that's the link. it. I don't have a red. Well, do I have a red? Oh, I have. I, you got you a put jersey. On the hat. I should have brought in the Redding Royals jersey. And you put on the hat that Felix Sandstrom wore. That's the cowboy hat that's still in my office over there. So this is this oh, is, is it really? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, uh, I I had it underneath the uh, underneath the desk for uh, for a while, and now it's just sitting prominently. This is not my office. It's just an extra one we have. So. Uh, with she wants me to say hi, by the way, to Dave and Buster's. She likes calling. She still likes calling you Dave and Buster's. I'll say hi to Aurora. Hi, Aurora. Okay. <laughs> Bob, thanks. David, thank you. Yeah, definitely. This has been a blast, and uh, thanks again.